of the Hallelujah Chorus. What a treat. Doesn't it make you feel like you're in God's very presence? Well, you are. <laughs> Emmanuel, God with us. He is here on this Christmas morning, 2022. <clears throat> Although we'll have to admit that doomsday, doomsayers abound, do they not? With predictions of nuclear war, devastation, socioeconomic collapse. I'm sure you have heard. Mm. Can you help us with the first slide, not the last slide? <laughs> That's, there we go. All right. We're back where we needed to be. Anyway, I know you've heard those predictions. So many negative messages around in the news these days. I'm sure you're aware that thousands of refugees are arriving in Spain every year, fleeing north from Africa, fleeing south and west from the Ukraine, fleeing east from Venezuela and other points of Latin America. War and political conflicts break up nations and families. Our world is most notorious for its lack of peace. Just look at those hot spots where it's either a matter of civil war or drug wars or terrorist insurgency or government oppression or ethnic violence or the Russo-Ukrainian war. So maybe we should be asking, how can this famous baby, so celebrated at Christmas, really be the Prince of Peace? Especially with all the wars that have been fought in his name. And by people claiming to be under his rule, his followers. I know that you're familiar with the very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 9 where the prophet predicts that this child would be born, this son would be given, and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, my, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, as if that were the crowning title. He will be the Prince of Peace. Has Christianity helped bring peace to this world? The conflicts are a long-standing phenomenon among humanity, attested to and perhaps somewhat explained by the book of James, chapter 4, where James asks rhetorically, what causes warring and quarreling among you? Don't you know? Don't you know they come from your desires that battle within you? Do we attribute the wars and the conflicts in the world to the desires that are battling inside us? Do we realize that's really the source of it? That's what the Word of God tells us. Of course, this was also anticipated in the Old Testament, the passage that was referred to earlier in Psalm 120, 
where the psalmist says, Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, and I live among the tents of Kedar. You see, these peoples, Meshech and Kedar, were actually a long way from Israel. Tribes located in Turkey and Arabia, a long way from each other. So the reference was not literal, it was a met metaphorical reference. But these barbarous nomadic tribes were especially known for their savage and violent ways. So possibly the psalmist was making a veiled reference to antagonistic neighbors nearby, such as the Samaritans and Ammonites, or it could even be a reference to his own difficult compatriots. And he goes on to say, too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, he says. Shalom. Beautiful Hebrew word, isn't it? But when I speak, they are for war. Milchama. Can you say that word? Kind of sounds bad, doesn't it? Milchama. Okay, let's practice. You guys can be milchama. And you guys will be shalom. Okay? You speak for peace. Let's hear shalom. Okay, shalom. Keep peaceful now when you say it again. Shalom. You don't say it with much aggression. I, that's okay. I know that, you know, you're really Christian. This is the tension, though. Shalom, milchama. In our world, it has been existing as long as humanity has existed since Cain and Abel. Or if these were Shalom, this is Abel and Cain, right? Wow. It's so ingrained in us. But the primary problem that the psalmist refers to here in verse 2 in this psalm, it was having to endure their lying lips and deceitful tongues. They were not trustworthy. You couldn't trust anything they said. It's just as soon stab you in the back. We take comfort, we're, we're retrogressing in this psalm, we take comfort now as we go back to verse 1. Remember what verse 1 says. I called on the Lord in my distress, and He answered me. That's the key. The difference in the true God and the many gods of the universe is that our God, the true God, Answers, he hears, he responds. That's our comfort. Jesus himself was speaking to his disciples. And he told them that these words he was speaking were so that they might have peace in him. Now there's the key. If he's the prince of peace, he said they could have peace in him. But then he promised them, in the world you're going to have affliction. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That word in the Greek is nikao, where we get our word Nike for the Nike shoes. Nike, as they say here. No, we say Nike. They say Nike here. <laughs> Sorry, got it backwards. <laughs> Nike means victory. And that's what Jesus said in the, in the face of all the affliction. And remember, he said this the night before his crucifixion. I have overcome 
he had already overcome. His peace was firmly established, and he would simply continue establishing it as he went to the cross. So we want to look at four Old Testament passages briefly where this promised prince of peace shines for what he is promising. The first one is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Will you read it with me? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. What mountain is being talked about here? It says the mountain of the Lord's temple, doesn't it? That's Mount Zion. That's the mountain of Jerusalem. It's talking about the exaltation of Jerusalem from which the truth would go forth. Remember Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman? He said to her, you Samaritans worship, worship what you do not know there on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. He said, we worship what we do know, speaking of the Jews. For salvation, he said, is from the Jews. The news of salvation would go forth from Jerusalem. But then Jesus followed that up with, the time is coming, and now is when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, for true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It will no longer be tied to a geographical location. It will be worldwide, universal. Okay, we move on to verses 3 and 4. A little bit more here, but this is such a heavy passage about peace. Let's read it together, shall we? Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Amen. In other words, this is talking about the end times. Do we pick up on that? When the true judge comes, our Prince of Peace will be the true judge. He will be the master teacher who will teach not just with words but with his example. The word of the Lord is what will come forth from his mouth naturally as he judges and settles disputes and brings peace among the nations. So the nations will no longer practice war anymore. You know, it may sound like one of those happy ever, afting, ever, happy ever after endings, but it's not a fairy tale. It's God's promise. But the realization of this promise depends on submission to this judge. Full submission to this judge will not happen until the eschaton. In other words, the end of the age, the end of this world. That's as soon as we will experience that kind of peace, universal peace. We move on to Micah, chapter 5. Let's read it together. 
Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from lasting. Micah warns here that Israel is going to be humbled by foreign powers. And her ruler is going to be subdued. But in spite of this humiliation, Micah foresees that God will raise up a ruler precisely from a humble place. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. You remember, Bethlehem means house of bread. And Ephrathah, from the name Ephraim, means fruitfulness. Appropriate names. The place of David's birth, but in fact, never an, never an important or influential, influential town. But it would also be Messiah's birthplace. The prophecy does not make it happen. Rather, our sovereign God can see what paths human development will take down the road. And he is ultimately in charge of everything. The amazing thing here is what Micah declares about this one who would come from Bethlehem. Because it says his origin, other translations say his going forth, the idea his providence would be literally from the east. That's what the word means in the Hebrew. From the east? Yes. It's a Hebrew idiom that means what came from before, from where the sun rises from of old. And then the text follows, up, follows that up with from olam, the Hebrew word that means everlasting. So far back, it's forever. In fact, God himself is called ha-olam, the eternal one. So the one who came to be in Bethlehem had actually been around since eternity. Do we get the connection here? Meaning that Jesus as a historical human being would have his start there in Bethlehem, but his personhood had existed forever. This was the eternal Son of God becoming also Son of Man from this point, assuming our humanity. So we move on to verse 3. Let's read it together. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. It seems Micah here anticipates a future time when Israel will seem abandoned. Perhaps a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile in Babylon, until the time of restoration which Micah relates to the birth of that ruler. And Micah says the following about that ruler. Read it with me in verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will live securely 
for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. All right, in our first passage, we saw our Prince of Peace would be a judge. But in this passage, we see our Prince of Peace will be a shepherd. Just as Yahweh himself is described as a shepherd, tenderly caring for the flock. And so this shepherd would care for them in the strength of Yahweh. The flock would live securely. Literally, it means they would abide, they would stand firm, precisely because of the greatness of this ruler. His greatness would extend over all the earth. It's now going to be a universal greatness. And this is what guarantees that the people will live securely. Everyone will be under his rule. And so we get just a piece of verse 5 where it says, read it together with me. And he shall be our peace. In other words, he's not just going to bring peace. He's going to be peace. He himself will be our peace. Because peace is really about a personal relationship with this ruler. Giving him the rightful place that his authority and his greatness deserve in our lives. Precisely the peace that Jesus had offered his disciples on the night he was betrayed. As he looked forward and saw the cross awaiting him, there was still peace reigning in his hearts, in his heart. The peace that he would continue to establish even on the cross. That's what he offered to those disciples. Let's take up one more passage. Ezekiel chapter 37. Will you read verse 26 with me? I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. God is speaking here about a time when He will bring all of Israel, northern Israel and southern Israel, Judah, back from the lands where they were scattered, they would again be one nation, never again to be divided into two kingdoms. The passage just prior to this one talks about how they would no longer defile themselves with idols. They would now keep God's law. He would save them from their backsliding. And God's servant, David, would be their king. Clearly speaking of a future time when Messiah, the son of David would come and gather to himself a community from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And what he promises them is berit shalom, berit olam. Berit, covenant, shalom of peace. Berit, covenant, olam, eternal. Finally, an enduring peace. What humanity has never experienced in our common relationships finally an enduring peace but it does sound like here that it only comes with the end times doesn't it so let's persist in this passage to verses 7 27 and 28 will you read them with me my dwelling place will be with them I will be their God and they will be my people then the nations will know that I the Lord make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. This is an amazing vision. 
Because here, the king is actually making his dwelling with his people, among them, which, if you were here three weeks ago, you will remember how that reminds us that this God is Emmanuel, the God who wants to be with us and who is with us. He's setting up his sanctuary among us, sanctifying his people with his very presence, clothing them in his righteousness. In other words, this God is for them. Two weeks ago, this is what we looked at. Deus pro nobis. He is for us. He is the God who wants to reign in our midst, even reign in our hearts, as will be clarified in the New Testament. Remember Colossians 3, where Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. This is part of our calling, and be thankful, Paul says. So in effect, this is also about God in us, God in Christ living reigning, ruling in us. You see, this reality is not just awaiting the end times. Peace is possible now for those who are in Christ. Peace is possible now for those of us who have made our lives a temple for God to live in. Even in the midst of war, Christ's peace reigns. That's why Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It looks like we need one more there, doesn't it? Like one is missing? We'll get to it. First, let me tell you something about the midnight miracle of 1914. Maybe you've heard, of this, heard this story. World War I was in its first year. As Christmas drew near, the thoughts of the soldiers in both armies turned toward home and Christmas celebrations, remembering the family of the comfort of family reunions around the birth of the Prince of Peace. So religious leaders around the world appealed to the leaders of the German and Allied forces for a Christmas ceasefire. They turned a deaf ear to those pleas. So among the troops, the report came that all requests for Christmas leave would be denied. And then one of the strangest things happened that may never be repeated in history. Even historians have trouble explaining fully what happened that night. But at the stroke of midnight on Christmas Eve, the guns stopped and a strange silence descended across no man's land, at least along a major portion of the Western Front. Christmas carols began to be heard along the front lines, in German on one side, in English on the other. Fröhliche Weihnachten came from the German side. Merry Christmas came from the English side. And slowly heads began to come up above the trenches. And the Christmas greetings began to flow all down the lines. And someone shouted, Tomorrow you no shoot. We no shoot. The Christmas truce, denied by the generals, was being established by the soldiers. 
men began to pour out of the trenches to meet the enemy in the middle of no man's land. Enemies sworn to kill each other, now shaking hands, exchanging warm greetings, declaring themselves to be followers of the Prince of Peace, even washing down English plum pudding with German snaps. And suddenly, the impromptu football matches sprang up. That strange football appeared out of nowhere from the English camp. The Christmas Day ceasefire had occurred in spite of everything. Well, the generals fumed over it. Inquiries were made. Reprimands were handed out. And by the next Christmas, 1915, the practice of killing had become so routine that it didn't happen again. But for as long as they were alive, the veterans of that Christmas, 1914, who managed to survive the war, remembered that 24-hour truce, a tribute to the power of a baby born in a manger who could create peace in the midst of war. He's still doing it today. The Prince of Peace creating peace in the midst of war. So our final look at prophecy is taken from two Old Testament books, Exodus and Song of Solomon. A passage of war and a passage of love. In Exodus 17, the Israelites are threatened by the Amalekites, historical enemies. And Joshua is commissioned to take some troops from Israel and lead them to victory. But the victory is won only in the lifting of Moses' hands in intercessory prayer. You remember the story? It required Aaron on one side and Hur on the other side of Moses to hold his tired arms up in intercessory prayer because as long as his arms were raised, Joshua was winning the battle. And whenever he let his arms down, they started to lose. So Aaron and Hur were the prayer sustainers for Moses in that battle. So at the end, when Joshua did bring victory, the Lord brought victory through Joshua. Moses built an altar and he named it Yahweh Nisi which means the Lord is my banner. So there's where we complete our Christmas quartet of prepositions. With this idea of God over us as our banner. The four include Emmanuel, God with us. That's the meaning of the incarnation. Also, God for us. Deus pro nobis. God in Christ in us. This is the theology of the preposition, isn't it? And finally, Yahweh Nisi, God over us as our banner.
And now we need that note from Song of Solomon. It's a book noted for its striking celebration of love in its most sensual dimension. I know you know that much about it. It's widely interpreted as a parable of Christ and the church as groom and bride. In chapter 2 of Song, of Song of Solomon, the beautiful maiden bears witness regarding her lover and says, He has taken me to his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. You see, our Prince of Peace is indeed our banner of love. Because truth be told, he came personally to the earth, to our race, as one of us, in order to marry us because of his great love for us. Do we realize that? I think that deserves a viva el rey. Okay, let's try it together. Viva el rey. Amen. Viva. And when you say viva, it's may he live in me. Make your dwelling here. Do you see why God is so concerned for the sacredness of the institution of marriage? Christ and his church coming together in holy matrimony. The wedding of the Lamb. You see, the intimacy of marriage is a description of the deep communion that God longs to have with his human creatures made in his image. So this is actually what we illustrate as we participate in communion. We're retelling the story of how we received him at his first coming with rejection, humiliation, cruelty, and murder. The broken bread, the poured out wine. But we're also telling the story of how he responded in peace and love, turning the other cheek, declaring incredible forgiveness and mercy, acting out the grace and the truth that were in his heart, broken by us and for our sakes, like the bread, poured out by us and because of our sins, like the cup. And nevertheless, he could not be defeated. Not by our hatred, not by the enemy's schemes, not even by death itself. He continued to reign even from that cross on behalf of humanity under the worst suffering and humiliation. And the kingdom that he established there on that cross is what he makes available to us in his resurrection to all who call on him in faith. This is what we celebrate in communion. At Christmas, and always, and that's why preceding our celebration of communion this morning, we want to have a special prayer of peace. A prayer for peace in our world, which we know can only come through Jesus Christ. 